Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. An update on the state of our communications within the United States ahead on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Happy New Year, everybody. I know that you missed us here. All 12 of you who watch Vincent Jason Save the Nation, we love you <laughs> uh, and we appreciate you. But we're back with a really interesting interview today. You know, we may even do a little Harlem Shake. No, I'm kidding. And, and I just want to say, before we even introduce that person, as someone who is from Harlem, I am offended that we call whatever that thing is that people were doing back in that, those <laughs> days, the Harlem Shake. That's not the Harlem Shake. Wait, Either way, I we've ask... got a great guest and I'm really excited about having events. Who do we have yeah. with us? I, I do. I want to ask you more about that later, Jason. Uh, but but first, you're right. We do have a great guest, the former chairman of the FCC, uh, now a partner at Searchlight Capital Partners, as well as uh, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Ajit Pai, joins us. Uh, Ajit, great to have you with us here on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Hey, Vince, Jason, great to be with you and Happy New Year to you and all of your millions of viewers. Yes, that's right. Don't undersell us, Ajit. Oversell. I mean, oversell us. Thank you. Um, uh, I, first of all, I just, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in the country right now, and it's hard to figure out where to start with you, but I, I guess I'll just start with the basics. You know, you were the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and I, I think, you know, the extent to which the average person thinks about that institution is probably very little. Maybe like Eminem saying the FCC won't let me be. <laughs> beyond that, like beyond that, what are we to make of the FCC and its power as an institution? You know, what does it do, and and how important should it be in the mind of the average American? Well, I think it's definitely shifted and increased in the terms of visibility for the average American. I mean, back when I was a kid, I think most people would have thought of the FCC in the context you mentioned, you know, Eminem, or way back in the day, Howard Stern fighting with the FCC over what you could say or not on the air. But I think increasingly that broadband as opposed to broadcast has become more important in Americans' lives. And especially during the COVID pandemic, I think it became crystal clear to every American, regardless of where you live or what you did, that you really needed access to the internet in order to do some of the things in your daily life that you wanted to do. And when it comes to broadband, the FCC is right at the heart of it. Uh, when I took the job in 2017, long before anyone had heard of COVID, of course, I said that closing that digital divide was my top priority, making sure that every American had access to the internet and advanced technologies. And that's only going to continue in the time to come. So I think more and uh, more and more people are going to come to see the FCC as not just a sleepy agency in Washington that nobody knows about, but one of the premier agencies that is really geared towards giving people what I call digital opportunity in the 21st century. So in other words, regulating access to the internet, that's the FCC. Yeah, promoting more network infrastructure out there so that people can get access to the internet and then also uh, making sure that uh, you know, all of the innovation that we rely on when it comes to technology continues to have a pipeline. So you know, the spectrum, for example, that our wireless devices rely on, uh, the satellites that are increasingly being deployed in space, all of those things are funneled in some sense or the other through the FCC. And so I think the FCC also has a forward-looking mission to think about where the puck is going yeah. and then enable American consumers to skate towards that puck. So, so, that, so that's basically like air traffic control. That's like the FCC deciding 
you know, okay, this this area of the spectrum is dedicated to th these services and making sure you deconflict and there's channels dedicated to that specific uh, kind of communication. And that's kind of long been an FCC um, mission, but now now there's just even more businesses in that space. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the innovations that I tried to introduce during my time at the FCC was to get out of the business of picking winners and losers. And I'll just give you one quick example. We opened up, so right now we're all, you guys are probably using a Wi-Fi connection, I would imagine. Many people listening to this are probably using a Wi-Fi connection. Those Wi-Fi channels are increasingly congested. So one of the things we did was to increase by 5X the amount of spectrum that's available for Wi-Fi. And we had people saying, look, you should take the spectrum and dedicate it to this purpose or that purpose. And what we wanted to do is to have the humility to say, you know what? We don't know where innovation is going to take us. So let's not have the FCC determine for all time what the spectrum is going to be used for. Let's let it be unlicensed to let innovators and entrepreneurs figure out how to use it. And so that hands-off approach is one that we think is much better in the long run for consumers than saying, okay, this narrow slice is going to be used for transportation. This slice is going to be used for radio or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we think actually that free market approach is one that uh, is going to benefit consumers in a big way. And we're already seeing it. If you go to, I went to my neighborhood Costco, for example, about a month ago and saw all these Wi-Fi 6 routers right there near the front. If you look at those Wi-Fi 6E routers, that's all a result of the FCC freeing up all that Wi-Fi 6 spectrum. And so that, that's just one of the many examples of how, how we've you know, kind of pushed the ball forward without uh, you know, steering exactly where it should go. So uh, Ajit, I wanted to kind of ask you, you know, you talked about uh, broadband access being a, a real big issue. And we've seen Congress is, is finally starting to, to step in, in in that regard with uh, infrastructure. And, and it seems that both sides of the aisle, for the most part, believe that broadband is actually part of infrastructure, not just roads and bridges. You need broadband to apply for jobs and employment and all kinds of things. Um, my question is, during your tenure, do you think you were, because I've read different things, you know, I, I've, I've seen people who have criticized you. Uh, no, you, <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, trust me, you and I have that in common. Um, people who have criticized you and said that you were not successful, and I know that you have touted the success of the FCC under your uh, tenure. Do you think that you were successful in giving uh, more Americans access to high-speed internet and broadband? Oh, without question. I mean, the statistics clearly show, number one, that our networks are much faster and in real terms cheaper than they were in 2017 when I took office. And so that's in terms of the people who have access. And also in terms of the people who got access, millions more Americans have access to the internet today than they had in 2017. Now, there are some questions about, okay, whether or not the statistics are um, you know, accurate in terms of the exact number of people, but in terms of the trend line, there's no question that that trend line has gone down in terms of the Americans who are off the grid, so to speak. And moreover, one of the things I pushed for way back before it was cool, if you look at my first major speech in March of 2017 as FCC chairman, there's an entire section there talking about how the president and Congress, who at the time were talking about infrastructure, should include in that plan substantial funding for broadband. And I reread that a couple of weeks ago. This, the paragraphs that I'm talking about echo exactly what Congress passed recently in terms of that infrastructure bill. So you know, both in terms of you know, doing the legwork at the FCC, but also using the bully pulpit, I feel like we did a lot uh, to push infrastructure ahead and get more Americans connected. And, and by the way, I actually met many of these people. I've met a woman on a tribal reservation in New Mexico, a farmer in, in North Dakota, 
people in the Delta in Mississippi who had just gotten internet access thanks in part to some of our policies. So yeah, this isn't some abstraction that I'm talking about. I actually seen uh, in many parts of the country, some of these people who have been benefiting uh, from our digital work. It's actually, Vincent, Vince and, and Ajit, can I, can I kind of rewind a little bit? Because I think that uh, there aren't a lot of people who know uh, enough about who Ajit Pai is. And so I wanted to ask you, and, and it's something that I've asked some of our other guests, um, particularly people who, who are, uh, who come from interesting backgrounds, who are, who are black or brown, or um, I'm wondering what it was like growing up in, in Parsons, Kansas, as a brown kid named Ajit. <laughs> That's a great question, but no, I, I think it's great, Jason, because like, I think so many, obviously, you know, our, how we conduct ourselves now, it's kind of informed by who we were, you know, back as a kid. And to me, at least, and I just went back home a month ago or two months ago, rather, um, you know, to visit my elementary school teachers and my high school teachers and others in the community, uh, because Parsons really helped shape who I was. And uh, I won't say it was easy. You know, I was a pretty shy, awkward, dorky, gangly Indian kid uh, with a little bit of peach fuzz growing into a mustache when I was 14. So to, <laughs> to say the least, I had my aesthetic challenges in the 1980s. But looking back on it now, one of the great things about Parsons is that it really embraced me and my family and everybody, uh, in my view, at least. Uh, regardless of who they were, in a way that I almost think bigger cities might not have been as accommodating. So, you know, for example, when my parents retired from the local county hospital where they worked for some 42 years, this is back uh, two and a half years ago, you know, hundreds of patients they had and doctors and nurses came and they just talked about how much they appreciated my parents devoting the better part of their lives to the small rural community. And uh, it, it was just it was just amazing. And so when I think back to my own story, it, it's just incredible. My parents came to the United States 50 years ago last month with little more than $8, a transistor radio, and just a belief in the American dream. And for me, at least, to have grown up in a place that sort of embraced my difference and wanted to learn more about my Indian background or, you know, what, what did Ajit mean? Like, what does the name mean? That kind of stuff. It was just a, it was a nice way to kind of get integrated into American society without uh, you know, some of the nastiness you might see in other uh, in other milieus. So uh, for me, at least, uh, you know, my difference is something I've always embraced. If you follow me on Twitter, you know, I tweet a lot about my background and how proud I am of it. And, uh, you know, to me, at least that makes Americans stronger when we learn about everybody's differences. It's just great that we have a country like this where, you know, people can become whatever they want to be, regardless of what they look like or where they happen to come from. And uh, to me, at least, that's the aspiration of America that I firmly believe in. Sorry to go on at length, but that's just no, something. No, not not not, a, not at all. So, um, so I I, I want to ask you also. Um, you had some some strong words uh, because we are. Uh, this is January seventh uh, that we're we're actually recording this. Um, so we're a, a year and a day removed from a, a dark moment in American history. Um, I'm wondering. Uh, have you gotten any backlash from Trump supporters or, or people back in Kansas or anything because you were uh, very, uh, I think you gave a, a pretty strong condemnation to the election lie and to uh, the insurrection that we saw on January 6th? Do you stand by those words, I guess, a year and a day later? And um, have you gotten any kind of hate from that? 
to be honest, I can't even remember exactly what I said <laughs> when I put out that statement, but whatever it was, uh, you know, I, I probably would stand by it today. I mean, I, you know, I said what I believe and I believe what I say. And so, uh, uh, but yeah, I don't, I've never gotten any blowback from anybody um, one way or the other uh, on those issues. You know, I, uh, I, I want to go back to the, uh, the issues of that, that you focused on at the FCC. Uh, one of them that was obviously very much a part of your tenure uh, was your decision to pursue repealing Obama-era so-called net neutrality rules. And there were, boy, there were a lot of fights about this. There were websites that were just, it seems like every website actually on the internet was dedicated to hating on oh you and the FCC. Uh, yeah. The theory being that the internet itself would collapse if you repealed those rules. I'm looking at an old Bernie Sanders tweet. This is November 21st, 2017. Uh, right after uh, it was announced that the FCC would vote to repeal net neutrality, Bernie Sanders tweeted, once again, the Trump administration sides with big money and against democracy. If this passes, the internet and its free exchange of information as we have come to know it will cease to exist. The uh, senator from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, tweeted, the FCC just voted to repeal net neutrality, a move that attacks freedom of speech for the millions of people who use the internet every single day. This is outrageous. And she said she'd be joining other senators' efforts to reverse it. Um, now, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, the internet did not collapse. That, that that's absolutely that it, it's still here. Uh, Thank you, Al Gore. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Thank you that's for right. inventing it's made it. A Al sturdy Gore. internet. Um, uh, you know, what do you make of of those predictions and what they look like in hindsight? And what was the impact? Is there is there a way for you to establish if there was a measurable impact from repealing those Obama era rules? I'll start with the second part because I think uh, starting with the concrete factual foundation I think is important and then we can move to some of the hyperbole. The, the facts are clear that the internet is far better off today in the United States than it was in 2017. According to Ookla, an independent third party uh, company, the average fixed broadband speed in the United States today is up 172% compared to December of 2017. Average mobile broadband speeds in the United States are up over 300% in the United States compared to 2017. Again, as we discussed earlier, millions more Americans have access to the internet today than they had back then. And moreover, the internet from a network perspective remains free and open. Internet service providers are abiding by the transparency regulation that we instituted. They are not blocking access to content. They're not throttling speeds. Uh, they're not doing any competitive paid prioritization and those types of things. And so from our perspective, from my perspective at least, any fair-minded person has to agree on those basic facts. I mean, this is not something that is up for dispute, which leads to some of the predictions that were made. And yeah, I, I sometimes smile when I think about all of them. And I made a list back then. You know, this is the end of the internet as we know it. You're going to get the internet one word at a time. Internet service providers are going to censor access uh, to political websites that they don't favor or to abortion rights websites or to all kinds of just parade of horribles that were out there. None of that has come to materialize. And in fact, to the extent there is censorship on the internet, if you are a sentient being with a semblance of intellectual honesty, you would have to agree that it's actually the tech companies that are deciding what you see and what you don't see. And there's a bipartisan recognition now of the fact uh, you know, that the problem of the internet is more on you know, so the internet content companies as opposed to the network operators themselves. And so 
to me, at least the conversation is, has shifted tremendously. And every now and then, you know, I'll go on Twitter and I'll notice some people saying like, why are we so agitated about this net neutrality issue? What was it about again? Why did we hate this guy so much? And to me, it's just a sign of the fact that people have moved on. They've recognized that this is you know, just a non-issue yeah. at the end of the day. And but so no, to me, I'll take it as victory. So Ajit, you, you see it then, but you say the inter- the big tech companies, you're referring to like a Google. Google's doing more viewpoint discrimination than say Verizon Fios. Like Verizon's uh, at this moment doesn't seem to be in the in the space of deciding, you know, which views get out and which views don't. But it's not hard for me at this moment to envision reading a story within the next day or two where we find out that Verizon decided to start employing viewpoint discrimination. Does it worry you that that does seem to be the track, sorry, the uh, the trend among major American tech companies who do have incredible power over what we see on the internet? I think it is a concern. And regardless of your politics, I would hope you would agree that one of the great benefits of the internet was supposed to be the democratization of information that regardless of where you happen to live or what you believed, you would have access to the endpoints of the internet so you could access content that you wanted so long as it's lawful. I mean, you know, things like child pornography, terrorism, all that is a separate issue. Uh, But now, I mean, increasingly we find uh, people from all sides of the political spectrum wondering, why can I not access these posts? Why can't I speak myself in this new digital public square? These tech companies don't have any transparency regulations themselves, so they don't have to explain why I'm not able to see this or you know, and that kind of thing. And so that's part of the reason why you see a Section 230 discussion on Capitol Hill and the president. I mean, the president himself campaigned on repealing Section 230, along with some questions at the FTC about how the tech companies do business. And so it's a very it's a very interesting how the conversation has shifted over the past four years from looking at the network operators to looking at uh, the content companies themselves. So I, I think that uh, the, the one thing that um, I think we can all agree is that, yes, there there is there potentially i think there's there's debate about who's getting censored by these uh you know which voices are getting censored some people just like to be victims all the time but (laughs) at at the same time uh what we've seen is competition that's popping up particularly for for some of the the content platforms so now you've got parlor and getter and all these other things where you know uh, you can put your content and there's you know other youtube like uh, forums to actually pick your, your you know, your content uh, up, I think, you know, that have a political spin. Um, so to me, I, I don't know that, you know, so I, I'm wondering what both of your argument is uh, for companies saying, look, we're going to, you know, serve the audience that we want to serve or, or allow for the content that we believe is, is good and you can go to Getter or Parlor or some other place if you want to get different content. Right. Well, I think I would say two things. One, uh, competitive entry is great. I encourage more companies, of course, to enter every market and see if their business plan will work. And if that's a business plan those companies want to pursue, great. If they succeed, that's the that's the marketplace of ideas. Um, but and nobody should get a leg up or be pushed down arbitrarily. Uh, secondly. 
What I would say, though, is that regardless of the size of the company, at least in the network operator space, there are transparency regulations. So whether you're a big internet service provider like Comcast or AT&T or a very small one that only serves a few customers, you have to abide by the same FCC transparency regulation. You know, as my third grade math teacher might say, show your work, you know, describe exactly how you manage your network. But for the other tech companies, whether you're Getter or Facebook, there is no transparency regulation. You don't have to describe anything. And I think what would be good is for Congress to sit down and just update some of these digital rules of the roads so that everybody can understand exactly you know, the terms by which any company is playing. And I think that would be, that would take a lot of sting out of this issue. I think part of the thing that you put your finger on is that because people don't know the special sauce that leads to people you know, not being able to speak on Facebook or see posts or whatever, there are all kinds of theories that arise that may be misplaced about why that is. And so I think if these companies just were a little more transparent about their algorithms or whatever, you know, that, that could help a lot. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I wish that we weren't in uh, this kind of partisan space. Um, oh my God. And, and one, of, one of the interviews that I was, that I was reading from you, uh, you basically pretty much laid out uh, what we're trying to do here um, in, in the fact that, you know, people need to, to speak to one another because I, I think one yeah. of the things, you know, the blind spot that the right has right now is they're complaining, oh, Facebook doesn't want you to see my posts. Oh, you know, which is demonstratively false, but, you know, oh, uh, Twitter doesn't want you to see what I'm saying, but then they want to ban books from your local library, you know, which is right. basically a low tech version of the same sort of thing instead of putting things out on the marketplace of ideas. Well, so I, I think, you know, you certainly have a point there. Can I address, I want to address your question, Jason, that, that you posed to us about the concern about, you know, you're right, there is, um, there are competitors that are arising. You mentioned some of them, the parlors, the getters, the rumbles, uh, and that's cool, that's great. And, and especially in a marketplace where there's genuine competition, it'd be good for there to be alternatives to spur the, uh, the user experiences of the legacy um, tech companies so that Google has to improve its results in order to meet the needs of the people who are looking for alternatives because they don't like how Google is serving them. That would all be great. But here's the problem. On an individual consumer level, it definitely works. You can go to DuckDuckGo if you want rather than Google. But on a society level, it doesn't work actually, not at the same pace. And the reason for that is because right now, Google itself, for instance, controls search worldwide. Over 90% of all search responses come from Google. So of course that gives Google immense power over human knowledge itself. So if the average citizen is looking for information on Joe Biden or Donald Trump. They're doing it at the mercy of Google's algorithms and that informs how they vote, right? So the, the information that they're intaking broadly in a society, uh, most people are using Google. And so that's giving them, that's helping them make judgments about what things are factoring into the big decision-making power they have, which is their vote at the ballot box. So we look at things like the Hunter Biden story, of course, being suppressed in the waning weeks of the election by the big tech companies. That does have a distorting effect if people can't find information about it uh, from these big tech companies. Um, one that I know I'm very familiar with is May of 2020, uh, Google decided to, um, to end all of the news-based search traffic for conservative news websites. So if you searched for things like Joe Biden, your chances of running into the Daily Caller were exactly zero, unless you also typed in Joe Biden Daily Caller, and then that search result would be surfaced. The same treatment, of course, wouldn't be given to MSNBC or and many other outlets who were still in the news space. 
So anyway, I, I just say so, all of that. I say all that to make the basic point that you're right. Consumers do have choices and it's nice to see other places coming up and, and competing. But at the moment, the companies that have monopoly like strength over that, those, over that market share um, have a distorting effect on society. And it's not hard for me to envision that there's gonna be issues that you care about, Jason, that could have, they could have a prejudice against and the end result would be bad, I think, for the country. Yeah, no, I, I don't, uh, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, I, I believe that if, if they're violating some sort of antitrust um, statute, then, you know, perhaps they should be broken up. I, I do somehow, or in many cases, debate uh, this idea that conservatives are being suppressed or, you know, and the fact that, they have a difficult uh, job in order to uh, suppress things that are completely false or defamatory. And at the same time, uh, you know, present as much information as possible. I don't think that there's someone like, I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to just run Democrat stories. I think that they don't want to run things that are potentially uh, salacious or, or defamatory uh or or you know promote some libel you know uh you know break a libel law and and they have you know some responsibility in doing that or at least i, I would think that they do so you know I, I think it's a it's a difficult space but i think if you really particularly if we're talking about big tech where we share information like twitter then you have these competitors that are popping up and you know what is it truth truther or whatever the the trump thing they just got a billion dollar investment um so you know there's going to be legitimate competition and i think that you know um that's the way things oftentimes should work if you're if if we're going to stick with this kind of capitalist framework then you know competition is is the best thing and I, and to me that seems like that's what a jeep uh, promoted with his views on net neutrality was about promoting competition. Am I, am I right about that, Ajit? Or? That's absolutely right. I mean, if we had kept in place those regulations, some of these new startups we see entering the space, like SpaceX, for example, in, in the, the satellite systems, um, as well as some of the terrestrial companies wouldn't have entered or they wouldn't have been able to raise capital to enter. But I think to tie together this topic with the previous one on net neutrality we were talking about, I think one of the things that just irks a lot of people is that these the tech companies should practice what they preach. I mean, on one hand, you can't say to the FCC, we demand strict net neutrality regulations so that internet service providers are, you know, we, we demand that internet service providers be barred from blocking access to lawful content, while at the same time, they themselves are blocking access to lawful content. It might be bad lawful content, uh, but I think you know you should practice what you preach is one of the you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people believe. And so, what one of my uh, colleague, former colleagues at the FCC, Commissioner Brendan Carr, has argued for what he calls full stack net neutrality, so that these types of regulations apply to everybody, not just network operators, but companies like Twitter and Facebook. And you know, that's one of the things that's going to be debated uh, at the FCC going forward and in Congress, I would imagine. So, what is your what's your opinion of of uh... Gigi Son and uh, I think it's Rosen Warsel, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the act, my successor, yeah. Yes. So so what what's your opinion? And it seems to me, I think one of the statements that you've always made is that the FCC, when people try to call you like 
a Trump sycophant or a Trump acolyte, uh, you've always kind of made it clear that the FCC is an independent institution, right? Absolutely. Um, but what I've seen in a lot of media is they make it seem like uh, Ms. Rosenworcel and Ms. Sohn, who I, who I don't believe has been confirmed yet, but they keep talking about this balance of Republicans versus Democrats and that it's going to become this, uh, you know, it's going to be a partisan uh, organization. Do you think that the FCC is in danger of becoming partisan? Uh, or do you think that your successor uh, is going to keep it an independent institution? That's a great question. I think there are two different strands to the answer. So one is you're absolutely right. The FCC by law is an independent institution. Every commissioner, including the chair, is appoint is nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. But once that happens, we're sort of uh, an island unto ourselves. We don't answer to the White House uh, as a legal matter, and we don't answer to the Congress directly. And so I think it's one of the things that's very important is to be able to maintain that level of detachment. And there were a lot of issues. You know, one of the speeches I'm proudest that I gave was my very last one at the American Enterprise Institute on January 15th of this year, or of last year, I guess it was, uh, where I talked about the fact that the toughest decisions I had to make involved me bucking the White House, the Pentagon, and Congress in different ways. It made a lot of people angry, but it was the right thing to do because the facts and the law were on my side. And so I said, you know, look, we've got to stand up for what the right thing to do is. And you can do that if you're independent and if you believe in the independence of the agency. And so I served a commissioner, then commissioner, now chairwoman Rosenworcel, and I actually started on the same day during the Obama administration, uh, May of 2012, as a commissioner. So she knows all these issues uh, very well, and uh, I hope she will adhere to that same ethos of being an independent uh, leader of the agency. But that's really important because you know, the things we started talking about at the beginning digital infrastructure, you know, getting more Americans access to the internet, or you know, some of the other things, you know, promoting more innovation so that consumers benefit. I'm hard pressed to think of how that benefit, how that's a Republican issue or a Democratic issue or how the left or the right might have an exclusive claim uh, to the importance of those issues. So to me, at least the FCC at its best is not just bipartisan, it's just nonpartisan, it's apolitical. And so I think the independence is something that helps us to be able to you know, chart a North Star that you know, keeps us free of some of those political uh, you know, uh, you know, vicissitudes. But you, you clearly disagree, I, I would think, with the direction that the chairwoman, Jessica Rosenworcel, wants to take things. She's in, she signaled that you know, when she has enough votes for it, she'd like to pursue restoring Obama-era net neutrality rules. What, what kind of peril comes from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be a tremendous mistake. But look, you know, that's uh, that's one of the issues where all every Democrat in Washington would agree on that. Like, yeah, we need to move back to Title II, even if there's no factual predicate for doing it, even if the predictions that were made in 2017 haven't come true that's sort of an article of faith now. And so I think, uh, you know, she politically, even if she believed the, uh, you know, in, in the current state of affairs, nonetheless, I think would feel politically compelled uh, you know, to go down that road. And look, I think it'd be a tremendous mistake. I mean, right now, as I said, uh, you know, the, the experience we've had under COVID shows that broadband access for all is not just a nice to have, it's a must have. And I can tell you because part of my work involves investing and in, now inv involves investing in some of these companies that are looking to build infrastructure in harder to serve places, you know, rural areas, lower income areas. The business case for building in those areas is already hard as it is. And so the more onerous the regulatory burden is, the less likely it is that these companies are going to be able to raise capital and build those networks. And to me, at least, it would just be a, a solution that won't work to a problem that doesn't exist. 
Okay. So it didn't sound like you gave a uh, resounding endorsement uh, to Ms. Rosenworcel. Am I am I reading that correctly? No, no. Look, I unlike my predecessor, who uh, has never stopped criticizing me from the, the day he left office. I, <laughs> I, I this is actually true. Um, but you know, I, I think she's going to do a good job on the priorities that she thinks are important. I think there's going to be some continuity in our efforts. So, for example, one of the things I pushed for before I left was for Congress to give the FCC a money to be able to support an emergency broadband benefit, and they did that. And now she's made that program permanent. And so, I think there's going to be some continuity. Yeah, there are going to be a couple of issues where we disagree, like net neutrality. But the bread and butter work of the FCC is going to go on. And another good example of that is 988. One of the major initiatives I was pushing for when I was at the FCC was the designation of a three-digit number for suicide prevention and mental health. Mm -hmm. And we adopted that decision in 2020. That decision goes live, that, that uh, number goes live across the country on July 16th of this year, which means it is Chairwoman Rosenworcel's responsibility now uh, to make sure that the, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed so that happens. And my understanding is that she's doing that. And so I think on those critical consumer protection you know, competition, innovation issues, we're going to see a little bit more continuity than, you know, the Washington papers might suggest. What is the, uh, just as out of curiosity, is there like a, uh, like a marketing scheme in mind for 988? Like, how is that going to be promoted? That's one of the things I want to get in touch with the FCC about. I, for myself, I'm going to be doing as much as I can to promote that. It's something that will literally save thousands of lives. I mean, you can imagine, uh, do you, I'm just out of curiosity, do either of you happen to know the number right now for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline? But off the top of your head? No. Not it's hard, right? My head. I post yeah, see, it every now and again. Yeah, no, it's, it's 1-800-273-TALK or 273-8255. You can imagine if it's you know, late at night and you're struggling. I mean, it's very hard to remember that number. But if it was something like 988, it, it, over time, it would become ingrained in our memories, sort of like 911 is. And so right. you can imagine all those people who are struggling just can be directly connected with a trained counselor from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And you know, I'm telling you, the impact is huge. I visited in Toledo, Ohio a couple of years ago, one of the NSPL um, uh, centers, uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline centers, and talked to some of these trained counselors. They said that 95% of the time when someone calls, they're able to successfully intervene and get that person you know, away from doing something to harm yeah. to themselves. And so just I, I'm, I'm truly convinced that 988 is going to be we're, we're going to see it in 20 years as just, oh, yeah, of course, 988. That's just a that's what you call if you're struggling. And yeah, I just wonder I was wondering if there's like a if there's like a slogan or something. I was just thinking as you're going through, like, it's never too late. Dial 988. Yeah. Like I mean, the, the like, one I tried to push out there on Twitter, at least and you know, in my own statements was you are not alone. Because especially during COVID, people feel so isolated. And we yeah. see, especially for these uh, you know, at, at risk groups, uh, we saw you know, rural Americans, veterans, uh, or, uh, African-American youth, and uh, you know, a couple other you know, targeted groups like that. I mean, just the rates of suicidal ideation and mental health problems are going, were going through the roof during COVID. And so I would hope that you know, we can do some targeted outreach uh, you know, and just make sure that these people know you might it might seem like you're alone but believe it or not there are millions of people around the country i mean this is gonna sound cheesy but millions of people around the country who might not know your name but nonetheless value you as a person and you know, we're all in it together so um you know just i, I it's amazing uh, since we started this initiative how many people have come out of the woodwork and have told me privately they appreciate it and i'm talking about celebrities pro athletes i mean just you know it, it's incredible the feedback i've gotten and so I feel like now compared to when I was a kid, this issue is much more out in the open and we can discuss it in a way that's going to help people know that there's a better tomorrow uh, out there. And the numbers well, are growing on that issue, unfortunately. So, yeah, oh this my is, God, it's coming it's at the right time.
definitely. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, no, I was I was just going to say, uh, well, if you've got, you know, uh, celebrities and pro athletes, I mean, that that's where you can start your 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 marketing campaign right there. I'm, I'm uh, pushing him. It's absolutely right. I'm, I'm trying to get the uh, we, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully things can come together in the next few weeks and months. Uh, I'm well, working on you, it. You've got Vince and I uh, or, or Vince and me, and we will certainly lend our celebrity. There you uh, go. To, to the cause, <laughs> you know, uh, you know. I think we're up to like 14 viewers. So uh, yeah, come on, millions and millions, as Ajit Pai said. That guy, we will definitely, we'll definitely promote it on this show, absolutely, um, to however many viewers we have. And, and listeners, we haven't forgot about you who listens on the audio podcast, but we'll, we'll definitely promote it. We love the idea. I've lost friends to, to suicide uh, uh, mm-hmm. starting back in high school. So, oh my God. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a real issue. And, and of course, you know, um, COVID and, and other things um, may have exacerbated it, but it's been around for a long time. A lot of uh, people, both young and old, succumb to suicide. So if, if there's a way that we can help, we'll certainly uh, be devoted to doing so. Yeah, neat though, uh, really 988, that, that's good. Uh, can, can I, uh, I wanna go back to a question that the Jason asked, cause we did, we just talked about the, the current chairwoman of the FCC. But I want to go back to the nominee, Gigi Sohn, who was just renominated by the Biden administration as the year begins in the United States Senate. And there's, she's a contentious pick. She's a very contentious pick in the United States Senate. Republicans have pointed out that she's spent much of her career as a pretty hard left partisan. Um, she, uh, she's called on the FCC previously to look at um, whether Sinclair Broadcasting, which is known as a conservative broadcasting company, is even qualified to be a licensee. She was referred to Brett Kavanaugh as an angry white man, and she suggested that his um, it wasn't a good look, his performance during his own confirmation hearing. Uh, she's donated $30,000 to Democrats over the last uh, two decades, uh, and she's referred to Fox News as uh, like kind of an arm of, of state-run media. Um, with those attitudes, you know, is there peril to giving somebody like that a job at the FCC? Well, when you put it that way, uh, <laughs> no, I think, uh, so I, I generally have refrained uh, from commenting on nominees. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll simply say that, uh, you know, when she worked for my predecessor, uh, Tom Wheeler, and she was an advisor to him when he was chairman, you know, I strongly disagreed with uh, her and him on a lot of the issues and, you know, had very, very different views and ways of going about expressing those views. Uh, it's a decision for you know, the Senate to have to make. I'll simply note that she did write an op-ed uh, in 2017 when I was a nominee to the United States Senate, before the United States Senate, and the title of it was, It's Time for Congress to Fire the FCC Chairman. So make of that what you will. So, let, let so me, no love let me lost, in you. other words. <laughs> That's, <laughs> she, she, I'm sorry, I'm just pointing out, though, that she, she shivved you and and you are uh, being the gentleman here and not saying anything about her. Uh, yeah, it's it's a decision for the Senate to make, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that uh, they'll vet the views uh, of the nominee as they always do. More with the Jeep Pie in a moment, but we wanted to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Gold Co. Let me ask you a, a question uh, about you know the the Trump administration in particular. Um, we know that you you actually joined the FCC under the Obama administration. It was Mitch McConnell, I believe, who who uh, you know 
suggested to the president that he should nominate you in order to bring about some sort of balance and make sure that uh, it, it really looked like your nomination was an example of bipartisan discussion and taking into account the other side. And President Obama was gracious enough to, to bring you into that fold. Um, was there any of that you saw during the Trump administration? Did Trump ever, you know, with any of the, the nominees who were under you, did he ever reach out to Democrats and say, hey, uh, who do you think we should bring uh, on to the, the FCC uh, to serve under Chairman Pai? Uh, so this is a great question. So uh, the way it has worked since the 1990s, uh, since President Clinton was president and then the late Bob Dole was the Senate Majority Leader, mm -hmm. was that the president of the White House, the White House would pick the, uh, there, there are five commissioners of the FCC. By law, no more than three can be the president's party and two of the minority party. And so the agreement that was reached in the 1990s was that the president would pick the three nominees of the majority party. And then the Senate, the, the, the leader of the party out of control in the Senate would recommend to the White House the two commissioners in the minority. And so that's the way it's worked over the years. And so in my case, as you mentioned, uh, Senator McConnell recommended my name to the White House as for one of the minority slots. Uh, the White House does its independent vetting. You have to do an FBI background check, all that kind of thing. And assuming you know, nothing turns up, uh, then they will nominate you. And that's what happened with me. And so the same thing during the Trump years uh, for the minority slots, then majority leader or minority leader Schumer uh, recommended uh, two commissioners for the minority slots and the White House vetted them independently. And so the president himself, other than literally signing the nomination papers and the appointment papers, uh, usually doesn't get involved in that. Uh, so it's actually a good example, believe it or not, uh, through administration. I'm kind of glad in a way that if we're going to have this more political system for picking people, I'm kind of glad it's somewhat removed, uh, you know, from the, hey, you know, I'm going to call up this person and ask them, you know, for a, you know, what they think about the issues sort of uh, way so, of picking. So is that is that custom or is that something that's codified? It's custom. Yeah. So the, the only thing that's codified in, uh, you know, in the United States code is that there are five commissioners, only three of whom can be no more than three of whom can be the president's party. But this cust it's more of a custom that goes back to the Clinton Dole years. So in theory, any president could say, you know what, I'm getting rid of the custom. I'm going to pick all of the commissioners myself. I'll pick my own. You know, if it's a Democratic White House, I'll pick my own Republican commissioners or if it's a Republican uh, president, vice versa. Uh, but thus far, that custom has, has stuck. And I think part of the reason is that if they got try to get rid of it now, the party out of power in the Senate would really try to slow things down and make the life difficult. So they're kind of institutional reasons at this point for presidents to stick with that, uh, that custom. So I, I do want to make one comment um, about uh, Ms. Sohn. And, and that is, of course, I, I don't know her. And I don't know what she wrote about you. But um, her statements... Uh, don't sound like they're so out of step with a lot of other people that would come out of the Democratic Party. Um, and particularly during such a highly, you know, intensely partisan moment that we were in, in the United States. And that's part of the, the issue that, you know, you were speaking about earlier. And the idea that she would say Fox News is state-run media, I hear so many Republicans who are probably up for you know to be nominated or will be nominated if so, if a Republican wins in 2024, who will say MSNBC is state-run media, 
you know, I, I, I don't, that doesn't offend me so much. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Well, I guess but the, that doesn't seem like it's, it yeah. would be disqualifying. Personally. I understand the point you're making. I, I just, the critical question is how is she going to use the power? That's all. It's like, yeah, so once sure. she's, once she is a, uh, a commissioner, what will she do with that power? And I do think it's interesting, I guess, how, I mean, at, like what she said in the past. And that kind of gives you kind of, it tilts her hand a bit. Like, okay, this is, these are the kinds of organizations that may feel the weight of the government's regulation. I, I guess, let me, let me just make that into a question without you ad- addressing Gigi Stone specifically, mm-hmm. sure. Pai. Um, are you concerned about the FCC and the amount of power it has and the idea that it could it could come to pass that it misuses that power and what would that look like i think i, I mean i that's a good question um I, i'm not concerned with necessarily the quantum of power that congress has given the fcc in law but as you put it i mean the question comes in terms of the judgment exercised by any given commission majority at a point in time about how to wield that power. Right. And that power can be wielded in any direction. So for example, right now, a number of congressmen have petitioned the FCC uh, to essentially get rid of the broadcast licenses of a Florida radio station because they don't like the fact that in their view, that radio station is too politically slanted. Now, I haven't, I haven't told you the political affiliation of those congressmen. I haven't told you the perceived affiliation of the radio station, but I think a priori, without knowing that information, you would, I would think both of you would say, we're a little bit hesitant. In fact, we think it's repugnant for the FCC to be yanking broadcast licenses on the basis of the political slant of a radio station, unless it's violating some concrete rule. And in this case, it was a group of Democratic congressmen, and they perceived that the Florida radio station is too conservative. But you've seen that the, the flip side of that as well. And that's one of the things I had to speak out when I was chairman about the fact that we are not going to yank broadcast licenses because of the perceived you know, left-wing tilt of a broadcast station. Um, so I think that's, it always is determined, it's always critical for an FCC majority and especially the chair uh, to have his or her kind of antenna up for those types of things. Because if you don't exercise careful judgment about the wielding of the FCC's power, you really could you know, essentially push people out of the public square. And that's not something that anybody should should want to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's a difficult one because, you know, having <clears throat> having worked in, in radio um, a little bit, um, not not like Vince has, who, who's definitely worked in, in radio uh, big time. And you're, you all should check out Vince's show uh, on WMAL. I'm just going to do a little commercial for Vince. <laughs> He's a good man. Here. Uh, WMAL, he gives uh, amazing interviews. Um, I, I don't know why he kind of sucks here because he's amazing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. But, uh, but it is really worth watching or, or listening to. Um, but you know, on urban radio, there is, I can tell you, everybody and every program director, if you go to urban radio, they are really, really sensitive about offending the FCC by being too slanted towards one party. And usually, of course, that's the Democratic Party. And of course, you know, 95% of the listeners uh, are, you know, more in line with the Democratic Party. But they are very, very sensitive because they don't want the FCC to come down on them. And I'm sure it's the same thing with if you were to go to a lot of country music stations in Oklahoma or in Parsons, Kansas, they would probably, you know, be very sensitive, like, yeah, we're all Republican. Everybody who listens to us is Republican, but we're going to be very careful about 
you know, promoting certain ideas. So, and, and it's the same thing. I actually think some uh, churches, and this is going in a different direction, and maybe you guys, if you feel like chiming in on this, but a lot of churches uh, have become these kind of political institutions where people are giving these political speeches from the from the pulpit, not just on issues. It's one thing if you say, hey, my Bible says abortion is a sin, but you're actually making partisan statements about candidates and all that from the pulpit, but yet you don't want to pay taxes. And I think that that is an issue. I, and I do think that there is some regulation that should come down upon institutions that become political rather when they're getting nonpartisan benefits. So I, I, I guess I would ask you guys what you guys think about that. I mean, certainly on the radio side, I can tell you, and I visited some of those stations. So 93.9, I don't know if either of you are familiar with 93.9 in the DC area, but that's Absolutely. my main radio station. And uh, I went to visit them and uh, yeah, they do great work, Urban One Radio. And, uh, you know, I all I can tell you is that at least during my time, they should have had a complete comfort in knowing that I wasn't going to be sort of the school marm sitting behind them, you know, wrapping their knuckles uh, with a ruler in case they got in trouble. I mean, to me, at least that's that's the worst thing that the FCC could ever do is put a little, you know, a splinter of fear in the mind of people who want to speak on the public airwaves, because I mean, then you're essentially censoring yourself. And to me, the entire promise of the first amendment is that the government gets out of the way and lets you say what you want to say, unless you're threatening violence or doing something else like that. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to be important for the FCC, regardless of administration to be able to stand up and say, your broadcasters, you know, we're not going to sit here in judgment of what you say. Um, you know, so long as you, you fill out the forms correctly and all that, you know, the licenses are yours to see, to use as you see fit. And right, I think but, really but, but aren't there certain benefits, you know, to remaining nonpartisan that people are getting and then they start oh, yeah. kind of, you know, muddying the waters. I think that that's what yeah. regulators are for, right? Well, no, so I agreed with you until that last part. Okay. I mean, I agree with you completely. Part of the reason why we don't watch cable news in our house anymore of any stripe, we don't watch any of it, is because it's just essentially pick your team, right? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, yeah. We're going to watch this and you, you just get so agitated by the end of it. Like, I can't believe this other side is doing X, Y and Z. Uh, you know, it's just yeah. it's not meant to inform. And so I actually, in a way, I, I just find it, uh, it's, it's contributed to some of the divisiveness that we've seen in our country. And you know, one of the things that uh, I think is also dangerous, though, is if you have a regulator trying to police that, I mean, the FCC has no way to judge what constitutes misinformation or partisan spin or these other things. And I think putting them in or putting three of them in judgment of that is a very, very dangerous line. Uh, certainly wouldn't be consistent with the First Amendment. But even beyond that, I, don't, I wouldn't trust myself and two of my colleagues to sit in judgment about, you know, whether a, somebody on the airwaves is going too far um, in one yeah, direction. Yeah. It's just we're not equipped to do that. Yeah, that's fair. Do that. you think there's an appetite uh, I, among some on the left, and I don't know how real it is when it comes to the FCC, to bring back the, the so-called fairness doctrine? Oh, my uh, God. The, the, the idea that broadcast licensees need to present, you know, quote, both sides of an issue uh, whenever they talk about issues, political issues, especially on the air. Um, is, do, you really, do you see any movement towards that being reality? I don't think so. I mean, it's talked about a lot on you know, Twitter or whatever, but when it comes to the actual rules themselves, I mean, the, it was the Obama FCC under one of my predecessors, Chairman Janikowski, that took that rule officially off the books. And you know, by and large, I think even, I'm pretty sure Chairman Rosenworcel said that she wouldn't support it. I could be wrong on that, but um, 
But I think that's one of the things that nobody in the FCC actually wants to get into the business of enforcing that anymore. I mean, we used to have an entire fleet of people that did nothing but track how much each network talked about issues from one side of the aisle or the other. And for the people who promote it now, what I would say is assume that your political enemy was in charge of the FCC. Would you want them sitting in judgment of your favorite radio station or broadcast TV station and telling them we want you to be a little more moderate in your views. And if the answer to that question is no, then I think you've got your answer about right. where you stand on the fairness doctrine. Right. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, I know that like at our, our radio station, one of the things we think about, you know, obviously is the FCC uh, and in, in not as like a looming threat, but like during election time, especially it's like we have a candidate on, you know, we, we have this cognizance that, well, we've got to provide equal time to, right. to the candidate in the same race if they ask for it, if they like it. Right. So, and then they're entitled to it. Uh, so, you know, it does play a role in that sense. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, but by and large, being in radio and working in especially political talk radio so much, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it was nice. I just, I just remember thinking it was nice that Ajit Pai was the chairman of the FCC because my basic, <laughs> my basic sort of thought was, yeah, they're not going to interfere with speech. I'm not, I don't think that they're going to, like lean into us for anything we're saying on the radio. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think once you open that door as a regulator, then every station out there has got to worry. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, about what content you cover and how you yeah. cover it. And, uh, but yeah, things like the equal time rule or you know, the, some of the basic indecency rules, those are still on the books. Um, and the FCC does enforce them, but. Uh-huh. Wait, can large... I ask a question about indecency? I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. How has, have the indecency rules changed over time by any chance? Because I feel like, like, the way uh, we were, I've, I've talked to Jason about this before. There's a linguist at a Columbia University, John McWhorter, who wrote a great book on curse words and how like, you know, curse words have changed. Like people are not scandalized anymore by the same words. So I, I'm pretty sure like these days you can safely say jackass on tele on, on radio and television and, and the FCC is not going to even begin to raise an eyebrow. Like, have you noticed, like, have things changed in terms of what the FCC might be interested in intervening on? I think in terms of the actual words, uh, as a colloquial matter, they certainly have changed. I mean, as you mentioned, that word, you know, is was when I was a kid, I mean, that was like really, really big deal. And now it's not so much of a big deal. But I think so the basic frameworks that the rules are still on the books. The FCC is still duty bound to enforce them. But there's a growing uh, question in the minds of many people about are these rules simply outmoded? Because as you might remember, the entire premise of these rules is that the broadcast airwaves are scarce. There are only so many ways to get messages out into the American right. public. And right. so that is sort of the justification for the FCC having this power. Now in the internet age, I mean, you, one could argue in the cable age that changed, but certainly the internet age, I mean, broadcast radio and TV constitutes a small and diminishing sliver of the overall uh, you know, I guess square, you might say, of uh, how people communicate. And so the question becomes, like, are these rules just outmoded because we're regulating this tiny sliver, whereas the rest of the internet and cable and et cetera is completely unregulated in terms of indecency. So yes. eventually the Supreme Court, I would imagine, is going to get a challenge in which they're going to have to make a decision. You know, are these rules that we upheld you know, back in the 1970s and 1990s, are they simply outmoded now, given the multiplicity of options there are for American consumers? So what do you think should happen? Should they throw out any regulation of indecency on uh, broadcast airwaves? 
I mean, my own view is it's really constitutionally problematic now because of that. That scarcity rationale is not there anymore. Right. And so as a legal matter, I would have to think the Supreme Court is going to look a little more skeptically now on the issue than it would have back in the 1970s. Yeah. As a policy matter, look, you know, I've got young kids and I don't want them hearing curse words on, on the air you know, to the extent they can. But what I will say is that broadcast actually has, it, to me, it's almost a positive differentiator for broadcast TV and radio so that even if these rules weren't in place and they theoretically could swear all they wanted to, yes. there's something about the fact that broadcast is sort of a safe haven, if you will, for parents and kids that uh, could be a positive for them yes. in the marketplace. And so, you know, even if right now those indecency rules that the FCC has, they don't apply between 6 a.m. or between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So theoretically, these yeah. broadcast airways could already swear during that yeah. time, but they don't do that. Why not? I would argue because they see a positive to being a kind of a more clean, a cleaner place, if you will, yep. uh, for some of the kids that are out there. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I did college radio for a while, and uh, we waited till ten o'clock, and it was like, did you really? <laughs> okay, here we go. Ten o one, you just let the expletives fly, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we could play records that that had, yeah. uh, you know, certain language. It's not like we went on and like, okay. <laughs> F That's this, awesome. F that, you know, it was like we played records that that had, you know, certain words in them. Um, That's funny. You asked. So when I visited 93.9, uh, one of the songs that was really hot was this Saweetie song that I love. But like every other word is a curse word. So I was asking, like, how do you make the decision you know, to play the record with all the bleeps? Because that takes out a lot of the song. Or do you just go with a different song? And it's kind of they had to weigh this stuff like in a way they wouldn't have at 10.01 p.m. So it's a. Yeah. Uh, it kind of forces broadcast radio into weird. You know what's interesting, and and I'll just say this: like, um, I know this is way off the subject, and I'm probably wasting time that we have with you know such an amazing guest. But I will say this: like, there are times where I listen to a record that's edited on the radio, and then I hear the unedited version, oh. and I'm like, God, I like the edited version better. This is <laughs> disgusting. You know what I mean? This like. This repulses me. And I remember I had this one record where they would edit everything, every bad word uh, with a gun cock. Oh my and the gosh. song was so much better that way than huh. when I actually heard the word. I was uh -huh. like, it sounded, it even sounded tougher. You know what I mean? Like I went for like the longest time thinking that the Black Eyed Peas had a song called Let's Get It Started. I thought, I was like, oh, <laughs> let's get Let's get it started. It made sense. They played it at all these sporting right, events. Yeah. And then you finally hear it. It's let's get retarded. And you're like, I what? I didn't know. I kind of like, let's get it started. I thought better. let's get it started was perfectly fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Let's get it started. And when you when there's a good word to to replace it with, yeah. You know what I mean? It Do you remember what that like, song was with the guncock? I'm curious now. I gotta hear this. So it was, it was uh it was actually I I I guess I had gone to like Walmart and I bought a CD. And it was uh, oh. by a group, a rap group called M.O.P. Okay. Um, and they had a song, if you remember, a long time ago. And yeah, anyway. Uh, right. But anyway, in that song, I mean, in that album that I bought, it was just like every curse word had a gun cock. And it was like, <laughs> it was the toughest thing I'd ever heard. And then when I heard the actual words, I was like, eh, I like yeah. with the gun Wait, cock. Wait, so you bought the edited version on a CD? Or you, when you finally bought the CD, it was unedited? No, I, I bought the CD and it was edited. And I, I thought it. that was literally how it was. And I was like, man, this is dope. I love it. <laughs> That's and amazing. And then like one of my friends played it and I was like, wait, yours is different than mine. I didn't That's realize funny. at the time that Walmart was selling edited CDs. <laughs> like that That's was amazing. Thing. That's incredible. By the way, this, well, I don't want to take us further down the rabbit hole, but I was just thinking about this yesterday. So my, we have an Alexa here at home 
And it's been listening to all, we've been listening to all kinds of different music. And my kids can get into all this music that I was into just by asking her to play artists. And it, it occurred to me, like people who are growing up now have no idea how hard it was to access music that you wanted to access back when the 70s and 80s. And even during the CD era, I mean, you had to like, if you wanted one song, you had to buy the whole CD and get 15 right. songs for 20 bucks or whatever. I mean, it is astonishing how easy the internet makes it to access music now. And that's a good thing for consumers, obviously. But, oh, my God. I mean, the lengths I would have to go to you know, persuade my mom to buy an album, a cassette right. tape or whatever. I mean, forget about it. Whereas now, I feel like an old curmudgeon telling these kids, like, back in my day, we had to fight to get good music and you know, persuade right. mom to open up the purse. And uh, it's just incredible how it's transformed. Yeah, let me, I'll just, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Vince. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to jump off his smart speaker thing because I have a question. Uh, okay, about just that. real quick. Go it, ahead. It's funny. You know, my daughter, she's 10. And, oh, uh, my son is 10 was, as well. <laughs> you know, so I didn't know. I, I saw her just walking around the house and she's singing, I'm walking on sunshine. <laughs> Whoa. And I'm like, where did you hear that song? <laughs> you know, yeah. But apparently they have an I Love the 80s club at her school. And That's so she's- awesome. She's hearing like all these 80s songs. She's talking about walk like an Egyptian. I'm like, where are you hearing this stuff? But I, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, we, awesome. we actually could bond over that because I, you know. It is I'm, awesome. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a down low Bengals fan, but. Oh, I felt so old. My kids know the words now to a Medic Monday. They'll like walk around singing it. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I'm happy in a way they know my music, but in yeah. a way it's kind of disconcerting. Like I'm uh -huh. just yeah, my yeah, seven-year-old walks around the house singing Queen. So yeah, oh, we're, we're nice. all yeah, no, we're we we definitely you know have things to bond over. Um, smart speakers, is there a place for the FCC there? I you know I see a, a lot of people real concerned actually about whether or not they get the smart speaker in the house. They want to know like you know are these big tech companies listening into my conversations and making decisions and all that. You know, how does the government uh, uh, interact with with that space? Because man, so many people have them now. So that would not be an FCC issue, except to the extent that they rely on a Wi-Fi spectrum to gotcha. be able to connect. But in terms of the issue you're talking about privacy, that would be a Federal Trade Commission issue because the FTC oversees uh, your privacy issues like that. And so, yeah, we wouldn't regulate that. The FCC wouldn't regulate them directly. Gotcha. So yeah. it's, it's not necessarily, uh, I, I think when we go back to the net neutrality debate, I don't think it was necessarily the political content that people were afraid of. Um, uh, my understanding was that these companies could then bully smaller websites or, or, or other, uh, companies. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, Netflix was really upset about, uh, net neutrality being repealed because they felt like the cable providers would, would bully them to pay, you know, higher fees or else they right. would, uh, you know, they, they would make it, you know, much more difficult for them. So isn't, you know, isn't that the concern? And haven't we seen, I, I saw an interview that you did, I believe it was on Good Morning America, where, and I don't remember, I'm, I, I apologize to you and to the viewers, but, and to our listeners, but I don't remember exactly the examples, but he gave two examples of, uh, the, the interviewer gave two examples where companies actually did that in the past. Um, so okay. I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, since the, and I remember him saying the impulse is still there because you said that these things have been challenged in court and they were, you know, resolved. 
but the impulse is still there. So it kind of goes back to Vince's uh, thing about could these things happen tomorrow? You know, uh, like they haven't happened so far. So the world didn't end. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, people, you know, it's the same thing with people saying we're going to have a civil war if, if Trump yeah. gets elected. Man, people were like, hey, it didn't happen. And then January 6th happened four years later. So like, I'm wondering like, um, like if, if Netflix like drops 8K content today and then all of a sudden that's a lot of bandwidth flowing through the pipes and Verizon says, you know what? If you want 8K content, you got to pay extra for it because that's just too much. That's just, it's too big. It's using up too much of our system. Could you see that happening? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a part of the concern that's been expressed is that Netflix and some of the other major content providers, I mean, at peak internet traffic, uh, they, they consume something like 77% of you know, all the available bandwidth. But I guess two different points. I mean, number one, uh, I, I can't remember the specifics of the Good Morning American interview. I'm, I'm actually thrilled that you, you watch some of this old stuff. I don't even remember it myself anymore. But um, but number one, I mean, this wasn't a wide, to the extent it ever happened, uh, it, it was not a widespread practice, certainly not enough to justify sort of regulation of all 4,462 internet service providers in the United States. Uh, and so my argument would be, look, if there is a practice like that, evaluate it from an antitrust perspective, which is an ex post perspective, and determine whether or not it's anti-competitive, as opposed to ban it everywhere for all time as an uh, ex ante uh, matter. But secondly, uh, there were in fact, I mean, what, that was one of the arguments, but there were in fact a lot of people who argued that politically disfavored views would get censored. And so that's part of the reason why Planned Parenthood of all people put out a push saying, if net neutrality goes away, forget about being able to access information on access to abortion. Uh, different uh, other political groups you know, argued that without net neutrality, you would not gain access to this content. And uh, it was a real fear that uh, you know, some people had and the fear was completely misplaced. And you know, so again, my, my only argument is like, I, I just want Congress to put on the page. I would just love for Congress to pass a law, just outlining all these rules that we all agree on uh, for all time. You know, no blocking of lawful content, no throttling of lawful content, no anti-competitive paid prioritization, and every internet service provider has to be transparent. I've just described in like 15 seconds a law that I would hope would pass in, in no time. But, you know, that, that I think would take uh, all of this issue away from the back and forth that we're getting from administration to administration. Yeah. So in other words, what you're saying is like the FCC doesn't have to do a net neutrality rule, pass a net neutrality right. law. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That sounds reasonable to me. I, I don't see, you know, why we wouldn't do that. Um, that makes perfect sense. I I, I called for it in 2014, uh, January of 20 or February of 2014. So I've been on the record almost seven years on this issue. And hey, you can imagine how much time and effort would have been saved if Congress had passed a law back then. <laughs> so we weren't fighting about this for the better part of a decade after. Uh -huh. And we could focus on things that actually matter, like getting people access to the Internet. You yeah. don't have it right now. No, it's That's much better to abdicate your responsibility than to take tough <laughs> votes in Congress. That's a, like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. And, and one of the things that you said about uh, about cable news and a lot of media is that I, you know and maybe I, I don't want to put Vince in on this you know but my opinion is that a lot of people that we've invited on this show who are elected officials or are running for office have run from us you know uh, on both sides of the aisle because you know we're, we're going to ask questions that maybe are, are difficult of uh, anybody from any party yeah and yeah. you know we're we're gonna ask those you know i'm gonna ask democrats hard questions i'm gonna well, ask, echo chambers are easy that's the right key. And, oh and my I, god I think yeah. they're, you know i want to call names out but i won't 
you know, for the time being. But that's great that you guys, honestly, I mean, this is a pretty unusual forum. I mean, it's pretty rare that I find a network or an outlet like this that does, that approaches things in this way. And I think it speaks to the confidence that each of you has in your own perspectives that look, by joining forces, we're not compromising our principles. We're not suggesting weakness. We're just saying, you know, we can attack a problem together as opposed to just, you know, banging the drum in our own separate corners. And that's something that's exceedingly rare in American public discourse today. I mean, I, I just, I, I can't understand, I can't stress enough having been through the fire of the last four years, just how, how it just makes people like me, and I suspect I'm not alone, just want to withdraw from all of it, <laughs> like not watch cable news, not follow yeah, the yeah. nonsense on Twitter, just kind of yeah. check out. And that's an unfortunate place. So when I was growing up, I, mean, I wanted to be a part of the conversation, whereas now I feel like a lot of people want to withdraw from it. So right. anyway, kudos to you. Yeah. Well, we, we, we thank you, thank so, you much. so much. I'm, I'm getting a little echo now. I'm not sure where that's from. But regardless, Ajit Pai, former chairman of the FCC, now at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for spending some with us. Hey, thanks so much, folks. I hope next time I can uh, put the, that mug in the background to work instead of this one. But uh, no, seriously, it was a pleasure uh, being with each of you. And I uh, hope you have a happy new year. So let's hope this is a great year. Happy new year. Thank you. Yeah, happy, happy new year to you. You too.